You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. Now, I like to joke that true crime stories come a dime a dozen. You know, you can just open any newspaper in history, and there will be stories of both major and minor crimes every single day. But I have to tell you, it's rare that one is so unusual that it stands out from all the others. And this story, which I've titled You've Got the Wrong Men, was released way back on September 30th of 2009, and it is definitely one of those standout stories. It's about two men facing almost certain death for a crime they claim they didn't commit. Now, I don't want to give away what happened, but I can tell you that it has an incredible twist to it. According to my notes, I first came across a story in an article that was printed in the October 23, 1955 edition of the Milwaukee Sentinel. Now, if I were to create a list of the 10 best stories I've ever told on this podcast, this would definitely be one of them. I hope that you'll agree. Anyway, enjoy. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Silman, and today's story is titled, You've Got the Wrong Men. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. For today's question of the day, I thought I would talk about that very famous breakfast cereal, Rice Krispies. In particular, I am talking about the, those gnomes or the elves, you know, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, who uh, made their first appearance in advertisements in 1933. Now, everybody knows Snap, Crackle, and Pop, but what they don't know is there actually was a fourth elf at one time. So my question for you today is quite simple. What was the name of the fourth elf? Again, what was the name of the fourth elf that was Snap, Crackle, and Pop? What was the fourth one? And I'll keep you in suspense and let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for today's story that I've titled, You've Got the Wrong Men. Now the story I'm about to tell you is one I have a feeling you remember for a very, very long time. It's a true story from 1934 in which a random act of kindness nearly became a death sentence for two men. The first character in the story is a guy named Clement Mulway, and at that time he was a 22-year-old cab driver in Boston, and one night in the latter part of 1933, you know, at the end of Prohibition, he picked up a bunch of drunken partiers, and he dropped them off at a bar somewhere. But one man remained behind. He was just drunk as a skunk and passed out uh, in the back seat. And suddenly he rolled on the floor. So Mulway jumped out of, uh, his, out of the driver's seat and ran around to the back and tried to lift the drunken man back into his seat. Now, you and I would have probably done the same thing. But within minutes, Mulway was on his way to jail. You see, a police officer saw him leaning over the body of the drunken man and was convinced that Mulway was trying to rob him of his cash. So Mulway was taken to the jail. He was photographed, fingerprinted, and you know, thrown in the slammer overnight for just doing a really nice thing. But luckily, the next day, the partiers came and were, you know, they testified that he was not trying to rob him, and uh, they let him go. Of course, that can't be the end of the story. That's a pretty, you know, there's nothing to spending a night in jail. There must be much more to it. You see, months later, there was a knock on the door of Mulway's apartment, but he wasn't home at the time. His roommate, on the other hand, another cab driver named Lewis Barrett, was. So Barrett opened the door to the sight of policemen asking for Mulway. Now, being a cab driver, and since his roommate was a cab driver also, he figured that Mulway must have gotten into some sort of you know traffic accident or something and sped off. So he tried to cover for his roommate by saying that Mulway was out of town for a few days. As they say, you should never tell a lie, particularly to a policeman. While Barrett was being questioned, Mulway just suddenly walked into the apartment. Caught in a little white lie, they were now off to jail, both of them. But believe it or not, it wasn't for, you know, rolling a drunk or telling a lie. It was for cold-blooded murder. You see, on January 2nd, 1934, just, you know, a few months after uh, Mulway's original arrest, there was a robbery at the Paramount Theater in Lynn, Massachusetts. Three men uh, came in just before the theater opened and demanded all the money from the theater's safe. Now, without going into all the details, 12 people were held hostage for more than a half hour. And in the end, an elderly bill poster named C. Fred Sumner was shot dead. All of the witnesses, all 12 of them, came down to police headquarters and looked through piles and piles and piles of mugshots. And there it was, Mulway's photograph, the one that had been taken months earlier for that innocent taxicab incident. And it was among the very few photographs that the witnesses identified as possible suspects. And here's the point in the story where they are nailed against the wall. Mulway was placed in a police lineup and eight of the 11 witnesses positively identified him as one of the three holdup men. Okay, but then his roommate Barrett was also placed in a separate lineup and the same eight witnesses identified him as the second gunman. What are the chances? It was clear to the police that they had the right criminals, but they were unable to get a confession from either man. And they wouldn't admit to who the third man involved in the robbery was. They both insisted that they were innocent, which, you know, happens in just about every crime, I'm sure. 
Being penniless, each man had a public defender assigned to their case, and they were placed on trial together in the spring of 1934. And at the time, if they had been found guilty, the punishment was death under Massachusetts law. And they didn't stand a chance in court. If things weren't bad enough for these two men, they were shackled together and placed in a green wire cage in front of the jury. Talk about prejudicing a jury. To prove their innocence, they needed to account for their whereabouts at the time of the crime, but that's very difficult to do. Barrett had no clue what he was doing at the time. Mulway, on the other hand, said he had visited a small diner each day for a mid-morning snack and figured someone would remember him being there that day. First, they brought in the you know the uh, cook, and he had remembered uh, Mulway being there, but then he admitted that he had left uh, for a short period of time, so maybe Mulway was there, maybe he wasn't. Another customer remembered Mulway being at the diner that day, but he was discredited because he admitted he was drunk at the time. Their last witness, an elderly lady, testified that Mulway had picked her up at work and drove her home that day. But on cross-examination, she was discredited because she turned out to be a friend of Mulway's older brother. These guys had no chance. The prosecution, on the other hand, had plenty of witnesses. They had 12 of them, to be exact. And witness after witness you know, just came up to the stand and testified that Mulway and Barrett were the robbers and the murderers. Even one witness named Leo Donahue, he just pounded on the rail and of the witness box and he yelled out, and I quote this, I absolutely identify them as the men who held up the Paramount Theater. And that's the end of the quote. Now, the trial had started on Monday, February 12, 1934, and closing arguments were scheduled two weeks later on Monday, February 26, 1934. Now, you do need to remember that date, Monday, February 26, 1934. It's going to play an important part of the outcome of this case. But at this point, right before closing arguments, these guys were clearly headed for the electric chair. Before I tell you the outcome of the trial, let me divert your attention to that of another crime, on February 2, 1934, and this is during the time that Mulway and Barrett were awaiting their trial, there was a robbery at the Needham Bank and Trust Company in Needham, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. Three men, they entered the bank and lined all the employees up against the wall. They then shot a 77-year-old employee for simply refusing to unlock the bank cage for them. A Needham police officer named Forbes McLeod was walking his usual beat and heard the bank's alarm. Now, the alarm had gone off many times in the past, so he just started walking slowly toward the bank. But one of the gunmen spotted McLeod uh, and fired his Tommy gun through the bank's window. McLeod was shot in the stomach and fell right down in the middle of the street. He died shortly afterward at the hospital. The criminals grabbed two hostages and forced them uh, onto the running boards of the car, but one of them jumped right off as the car sped away. The second hostage was thrown off the car about three miles from the crime scene. Now, During their getaway, the crooks passed a firehouse and saw patrolman Frank Haddock casually talking with firefighter Timothy Coughlin. They opened fire with the machine gun again, and Haddock was killed instantly, and Coughlin luckily survived. The gunman fled off with $14,000 in cash, which was quite a big chunk of change back then. The police had very little to go on. They did find a Packard automobile five days later that they believed to be the getaway car, but it was burned to a crisp. The license plates were gone, and there had been a clear attempt to destroy any identifying marks on the car. 
Detectives assigned to the case decided to bring in a Packard factory expert to examine what was left of the car, what little was left of the car. And he was able to determine that the battery was not original and had been recently been replaced. A canvassing of local garages revealed a suspect in the case, a guy named Merton Millen. And further detective work determined that the other two men involved were Abraham Faber and Merton's brother Irving. Abraham Faber was the first to be apprehended in Boston. While he didn't know the exact whereabouts of the two brothers they had left town, detectives ultimately found out that they were staying in the Hotel Lincoln in New York City. So police staked out the hotel, and when Irving Millen entered the hotel lobby, a struggle ensued uh, and police arrested him. About a half hour later, Merton Millen entered the lobby with his wife Norma by his side. Merton was immediately wrestled to the ground by Detective John Fitzsimmons, at which point Merton grabbed Fitzsimmons' gun. So another officer ran up and clobbered Merton with his blackjack right at the very moment that Merton pulled the trigger. Luckily, the scuffle caused the gun to turn and the bullet passed down the right pant leg of Detective Fitzsimmons. He suffered some minor burns from the bullet, but overall he was fine. I should point out this all occurred on Sunday, February 25th, 1934, the day before closing arguments that were scheduled for the 26th for the two men on trial. I am sure you can see exactly where this is going. Instead of closing arguments, the prosecutor in the case asked the judge to reopen the presentation of evidence, which occurred on Tuesday instead of Monday. Two of the witnesses were brought back to the stand and testified that they were now certain that Mulway and Barrett did not commit the crimes. It seems that they, along with six other witnesses, have been taken to Dedham to see the photographs and read statements from those three men that were arrested on Sunday. The judge instructed the jury to return verdicts of not guilty, which I have a feeling is pretty rare in a trial, and one by one they surely did. Mulway and Barrett released from the cages and became free men. It's just amazing how close they came to certain death. While the Millen brothers initially claimed to be innocent, their partner in crime, Abraham Faber, spilled the beans. By the end of their crime spree, they had killed four men, robbed three banks, and two theaters. And believe it or not, they had actually stolen their weapons from a, and get this, from a state police exhibit of weapons at an auto show. They had stolen all their weapons, including the machine gun, from the state police. All three men faced trial and, of course, were found guilty. They appealed their verdict, uh, during which time the two Millen brothers tried to escape from jail. But they all went to the electric chair in Boston on June 7, 1935. Uh, Merton's wife, Norma, the one who was with him when he was arrested, served a year in jail as an accessory to the crimes. And just to sum up, I'm going to add a couple other tidbits. The state actually awarded the two men falsely accused of the theater murder, that's Mulway and Barrett, $2,500 each for their mental anguish, but then they were ripped off by their lawyer, a guy named Charles McGlue, who demanded half of the payment. And they were able to talk him down to $2,000, but public outcry and facing possible punishment by the state house, McGlue was forced to return all the funds to the two men. Lastly, the Tommy gun, the machine gun that was used during the robbery of the Needham Bank, has the distinction of being the first machine gun ever used during a crime in Massachusetts. And surprisingly, probably not surprisingly, it recently sold in 2006 for $48,875. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor. Madam, I wouldn't be so bold as to ask how old you are. But tell me, around 11 o'clock in the morning, how old do you feel? About twice as old? Do you wilt? Then what you need is a B-E-B. B-E-B, 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 wow! B-E-B means basic energy breakfast. The kind of breakfast food experts say everyone should eat every morning. The kind of breakfast that gives you energy and zip. That makes you feel like licking your weight in wildcats. What should a basic energy breakfast consist of? Fruit or juice, toast and your favorite beverage, and cereal. And that's where Grape Nuts comes in. Grape Nuts is a cereal that gives you nourishment plus. Why, it's a fact that just one serving of Grape Nuts with milk and sugar gives you more nourishment than an egg and a slice of bacon. Plus a wonderful flavor that says, give me more. Give me more Grape Nuts. Grape Nuts, the cereal that's different, with those satisfying little kernels that stay crisp to the last spoonful. Remember, Grape Nuts give you plenty of healthy nourishment and a fine, tempting flavor you can really enjoy. And if you want to beat that mid-morning letdown, be sure you get your B.E.B. and make Grape Nuts the heart of your basic energy breakfast. And our Grape Nuts takes you back to Gangbusters. I've been asked numerous times if these commercials are real, and they really are. Uh, That happens to be from a 1949 episode of the old radio show Gangbusters, as you heard uh, at the very end of the commercial. Now, the amazing thing about grape nuts is that they have never contained grapes or nuts. It's made from wheat and barley. And the origin of the name is uncertain. Some say that CW Post believe that the maltose sugar, which is then known as grape sugar, formed during the baking process and it had a nutty flavor to it, hence the name grape nuts. Others say that it came from its resemblance to grape seeds or grape nuts. I have a feeling the first story is probably truer. Um, But uh, who knows? We'll never know, probably. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call news of the weird past. Our first story goes back to February 26, 1896, and it's reported that two brothers, six-year-old John Bender and nine-year-old James Bender, made the mistake of playing much too close to the railroad tracks in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. They accidentally ran out in front of a locomotive that was barreling down the tracks. Not surprisingly, both boys were struck by the train and run over. What is amazing is that after the train passed, both boys sprang to their feet and ran home. The older brother James had a severe scalp wound, yet his younger brother John only sustained a few bruises. Pretty amazing. Our next little story goes back to April 21st, 1941. It was reported that Tommy Burns of Kingston, Tennessee, was tearing down an old building on his property and discovered a small fortune. I'm sure we all wish that would happen to us. While removing a board, Tommy found a wad of $800 in cash. It just rolled to his feet. Further examination revealed that there was an additional $250 in gold and silver pieces hidden in the wall. And it's believed that the money was hidden away many years ago, actually many, many years ago now, by the property's original owner. And once he died, no one knew about it until the building was being wrecked. I guess maybe I should start tearing through the walls of my old house. 
Our last little tidbit goes back to November 19, 1946, where it's reported that a two-and-a-half-year-old tiger escaped while its cage was being cleaned at the Taronga Zoo in New South Wales, Australia. The keeper tried to get the tiger back into its cage, of course he would, but it just became nervous and ran off. Now, after repeated attempts to get it back in its cage, the order was given to shoot the tiger. It seems that the tiger was just becoming too agitated, and there was fear that it would harm the zoo's visitors. The hunt lasted about an hour and a half before, sadly, the tiger was shot dead. What is also reported is that its pelt was removed and prepared for tanning, and this is the strangest part. They fed the tiger's meat to the other park animals. And now the answer to today's question of the day, and I'd asked about Rice Krispie cereal. I said at one time there were four elves or gnomes. Some people say they're gnomes. Some people say they're elves. It really doesn't matter. But what was the name of the fourth elf character? There's Snap, Crackle, Pop, and, well, the fourth one is Pow. And Pow is supposed to represent the explosive nutritional value of the cereal. Pow, unfortunately, got the axe in the 1950s because he wasn't popular. And I guess he knew what it was like to be the fifth beetle or something like that. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the wrong men, as well as the question of the day, you know, about Snap, Crackle, Pop, and Pow, listening to our retro sponsor, Grape Nuts, even though there's no grape or nuts in them, and the news of the weird past tidbits on the brothers run over by the locomotive, a fortune found in an old building, and of course, the tiger that became a gourmet dinner for a zoo's inhabitants. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. Now, if for some reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. And lastly, as I've said in previous uh, podcasts, I'd appreciate it if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. It really has been growing quite a bit lately. Well, thanks for listening again. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.